All right, welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin and my co-host, Mark Dunn. Mark, hey, how's it going? Hey, Carl, going great tonight. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's a nice night here in New London. And uh, that was a great show last time, wasn't it? Oh, it was fantastic. It was great to have the uh, group up in Boston. Man, that that was spectacular. So, uh, so, so, what happened this week in .NET news? I didn't, I didn't hear anything. No, I really haven't particular. heard anything uh, major this week. What have you been doing? Uh, mostly this week, I've uh, I've been playing around with BizTalk. I have played around some with, uh, you know, using ComInterop to uh, to write a .NET app that uh, could submit something to BizTalk. Oh, cool. How'd that work out? Worked out just great. You're going to be uh, teaching a class in BizTalk or something that you were... Right. I'm flying up to uh, Norfolk, Virginia in the morning, so I'm going to be spending next week uh, at Langley uh, teaching a BizTalk class. Really oh, looking forward to that. Right. But, uh, it's a it's an awesome product if you've got to do business awesome. to business. Uh, and really, most people think about it as a product that you can use to communicate between trading partners. But, right. uh, you know, another powerful feature of BizTalk is just uh, application integration. Right. Because it hooks up to everything, kind of like a big switchboard. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, Mark, uh, I guess uh, we should introduce our guest uh, this week. He was a co-author of the very first book on VisualBasic.net from Rocks Press, which was called uh, VBNet Programming with the Public Beta. And I remember seeing on Amazon.com a comment left by a reader that said he was disappointed because the beta didn't come with the book. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, I'm very pleased to announce uh, a guy who's been very active in the .NET community from day one. Like I said, he was the co-author of the very first book on VB.NET. Would you please welcome Mr. Billy Hollis. Billy, how are you? I'm doing great. It's, uh, it's a spectacular weekend here in Nashville, too. Nashville. So that's where you're based out of, eh? Yes, I've lived in Nashville most of my life. Not exactly the high-tech mecca of the world here, and the advent of the Internet meant a lot more to me than most people, I think, because it meant I could really do things around the country and around the world uh, and get away from what is comparatively a low-tech city here. Huh. That's a music city, I guess, huh? Music and entertainment, uh, publishing, things like that. Nashville has a fairly varied economy, but uh, the one thing you can say there's not much of here is high-tech. Wow. So I guess you do a lot of traveling then. I do a fair amount of traveling, but uh, in the last oh, six months to a year, I've seen that uh, there's been enough companies that have begun to adopt the leading edge .NET stuff so that I'm now sort of in the process of shifting from doing mostly training and writing to doing actual production projects. I suspect that by this time, well, let's say by early next year, that I'll be doing very, very little training, for example. So the consulting business is uh, really picking up for you. That's right. I'm really gratified to see that. Uh, I think it happened in some other parts of the country a little bit earlier on the betas of .NET that you saw companies beginning to make a real venture into projects that, that used it. Nashville being conservative and a little bit behind the curve, you really didn't see that kind of adoption until the actual release. And it still took people a few months to really get comfortable with the idea of doing things. Most of the initial projects from the February, March, April time frame were comparatively small, people just basically dipping their toe in the water. And then along about the end of the summer, I began to see companies starting to do 
seven-figure projects in right. .NET in Nashville, and that's been a nice change to see. Oh, certainly. So the, that's great. Uh, I've seen pretty much the same thing here in Atlanta. Uh, a lot of corporations are sort of holding off to see what .NET's going to do. So these are mostly pilot projects before, up to this point, you mean? Yeah, I think most of the ones I saw early in the year are pilot projects, and now I'm seeing the first round of companies making a full-bore commitment. But it's probably worthwhile for me to mention that I don't typically work with a lot of enterprise-level or corporate customers because, first of all, there aren't that many in Nashville. I tend to work more with software vendors, people who produce commercial software for resale. There are quite a bit more of them here, especially in the healthcare arena. Now, they have some very, very good reasons to want to go to .NET. If they've been holding off doing a new version of their product, um, then it just doesn't make any sense at all to invest any more any more money in COM. Because if you're a commercial software vendor, COM was just devastating for you because of the deployment problems. Not a bad technology to develop in, but the deployment issues for projecting um, products out to uh, several thousand users made COM not a, a lot less than an ideal platform for, for a commercial product. .NET doesn't have those drawbacks of COM. So it, .NET really makes a big difference for those guys. That is an understatement. It almost seemed as though with Windows 2000 and then XP that uh, we really finally started to rein in some of those problems, but it was a long, painful process, wasn't it? It really was, and I saw companies that were spending anywhere from 30 to 50% of their technical support budget just on trying to resolve DLL problems among their, their user population. And that, that has a big impact on people's bottom line when you have to spend that kind of money on technical support, not to mention the installation technology, which had to have a huge amount of intelligence built into it. I talked to one local company that claimed that they spent about 30% of their budget on installation and deploy their development budget on installation and deployment technology that didn't have anything really to do with the business nature of their software. That was just what they invested to make it practical to distribute and support the stuff in the field. And that's a that's a large number just for installation technology. I think .NET will cut that by three quarters at least. Well, that certainly is a large number. Uh, I mean, you would think that uh, companies once they realize uh, the benefits of .NET would just uh, come to it in droves. Well, I, I think that some of them are making that jump, but especially among commercial software vendors, the thing that balances their, their desire to go forward is the fact that a platform shift is the single most risky move that a software package company can take. Especially given the last, the last round that they had to endure with. Now, it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf syndrome. That's right. So they are being very careful about it. It's a it's a tug of war in those companies. You'll find the people who are very excited about .NET and they're that are prepared to go forward, and you'll find the people that are trying to be more conservative because they realize that the risks are there. On one side, uh, the benefit is being first with a new platform, a new technology. You could, could conceivably really uh, get, gain an edge up on your competition. But if you were to get in too early spend the money and not be able to get a viable product out the other end, it would cripple you. Now, I don't think the risk of that happening in .NET is very high. In fact, and, and I tell them that, 
that I think that the risks that they're going to get into that scenario with .NET are just not even worth considering. But you have to understand that from their point of view, they don't know what we know about it. So it's easy for them to imagine that it's that there's a, a fair element of risk there. Billy, let me ask you, do you think that's why Microsoft markets uh, .NET as a web services platform and a web development platform primarily, you know, with the XML focus and the web and the Windows services as opposed to, hey, guys, this is a new Windows application platform? <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure why they do that. And I have criticized inside Microsoft from the day that uh, – that I heard the elevator speech of, .NET is a platform for building XML-based web services. I mean, I, I, I thought that was a mistake from the beginning, basically because if, if you take that as your marketing message for why you need .NET, number one, if people don't know what web services are, then you've lost them. Right. Number two, if they say, well, then I don't need web services yet. Therefore, yeah. I guess I don't need .NET yet. That's I my mean, that's my criticism. Yeah, that's that's a corollary of that. I think the problem that Microsoft was facing there is that .NET's so big that you've got the blind man and the elephant problem coming up on it. <laughs> it's like what part of it, how you describe it depends upon what, what part you blunder into first. Right. And so web services was the, the one part that was furthest out there. It was very much what looked like the next phase of of the, the Internet revolution. So that looked to be the sexiest thing that Microsoft could, could put out. And, and, um, and, and I have to admit that it's trying to explain the reasons to a commercial software company why the deployment is so different and why it changes the whole economics of their industry. That's a long conversation for me to have with them. Yeah. There, there isn't any, any 30-second elevator speech that will get it across to them. So I think Microsoft just gave up on that challenge early. I think they're trying to do it now with the Get Connected theme. I'll be interested to see how successful they are with that message. Right. Carl, you've got a, a little talk that you do about why WinForms are going to take over the world. Uh, I mean, yeah. how has that come across with different groups that you've talked to? Well, I think um, I think Billy's on the same page here. He's done a similar talk and uh, feels very strongly about it. And it's basically the whole idea that the Windows form, you know, the rich Windows application model has been so improved and so simplified. And, and when I say improved, that doesn't even do it justice because that makes it sound like new stuff has been added to the problematic stuff that we already have. And that's just not the case. It's a re-architecture that sits on top of Windows, the Windows API. Um, it's an upgrade for Windows, you know, object-oriented Windows. And the and the the first of all, for developers, it's great. And second of all, for deployment and for uh, security and installation and all those issues that we've had to grapple with over the years, it's just a no-brainer. And when when you tell people. When, you know, people. When I the first thing I do in my master class is I ask people, you know, what do you hope to get out of this class? What are you here to learn? And nine times out of ten, they come here to to learn ASP.NET because they're convinced that the web model is the only, you know, is the way to go. Um, and when once I demonstrate the Windows form deployment, uh, you know, linking linking assemblies on the internet and uh, using the browser to distribute the application. Um, and then, you know, once I can make the, the case for rolling out the framework as an upgrade and not as, you know, system files that we're going to include in our setup EXE, but rather as a system upgrade, you know, that you would use in the service pack mentality, 
of uh of that you know once that's once that's laid down and especially it's much easier in an enterprise than on the internet then uh, the deployment picture is sweet uh and it's simple easy configurable secure and it makes more sense to me than struggling with uh you know trying to stuff uh square pegs and round holes going through the internet and trying to host an application in the browser yeah i think that's a better approach to try to explain to people exactly why we'd want to change the browser was never really intended to be a platform for an application interface it was just intended to host hyperlink documents and so right. uh the the stuff that was kind of layered on to html to allow that doesn't come anywhere close to what you can do with a true smart client interface and I really got into this controversy starting almost exactly a year ago. Uh, Rocky Latka and I write a column, one each month for each of us, called Adventures in VB.net, which is on MSDN. MSDN.Microsoft.com? MSDN.Microsoft.com. If you go to the columns section, you'll see Adventures in VB.net as, as one of the, uh, the options. And, and there, we've built up 20 columns, 20-something columns, I think, in the last year or so that we've been writing them. And one of the earliest ones I wrote... I titled it, uh, perhaps a bit provocatively, Death of the Browser, question mark, <laughs> to try to get people's attention, and that started a lot of debate. By far, that is the most read column of anything we've done, by a factor of probably about 10, and it stimulated a lot of debate. And I came at it from that, look, the browser just isn't ideal for users approach, and look, this is what users need. And the only reason that we ever hosted applications in a browser was because the deployment costs were so low. That's the only reason we ever did it. If you frame Not it, because that was a particularly attractive user interface. It was just a way of making the application available. Right. If we have an alternative that makes the application available but retains the ability to do smart client work, then you've got a killer combination. And I think that's really starting to, to sink in among people. Also, you know, think about back back when the browser you know, became mainstream when uh, HTML and web browsing hit the streets, if you will, in 1994, I think, was when the big boom was. Um, you know, that was like at the pinnacle of bloated Windows deployment and DLL hell. That was like back when, you know, Setup EXE had to contain Olay 2 DLL and Olay Aut 32 and, you know, MFC and MFC ANS and all these other crazy... the MSV CRT the runtime for C sharp C plus plus rather, and um, just because nobody knew the state of the system you were develop you were deploying on, and nobody could you couldn't rely on the fact that uh, you know the system you were deploying it on was going to be up to speed. It was going to be have all the latest DLLs. So you had to stuff all these system DLLs in there, and you know the 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 responsibility for maintaining the system fell on application vendors you know what i mean yeah and we don't want it <laughs> we don't want it <laughs> we're not experts in windows system files you know uh, there was no service packs back then there was no updates and so you know if you if you installed a browser or you installed a cd-rom or something there was a good chance that you know you were now okay and up to speed but not only that, but all the little quirks and problems that we had with setup programs, we didn't really know how to not overwrite over DLLs, and you know what I'm saying? We didn't we didn't have all those tricks. Yeah. It took us a long time to figure that yeah. out. 
at the very time that com was becoming most expensive in terms of deployment. Yeah, and here comes all of the a browser. sudden there was a an option that was essentially zero cost. Zero cost and boom, deploy. click around the world and and hey, this is great. Yeah. And, but and if, I don't claim that smart client deployment is zero cost, quite as cheap as the browser, but it's not that far away from it. And so it's very very practical in a broad range of circumstances. All right, it's time for another cheesy commercial from Franklin's Net. You're listening to .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET programmers with Carl Franklin and Mark Dunn. We're talking this hour with Billy Hollis from Nashville, Tennessee, about .NET remoting, smart clients, and uh, in the future. So uh, stay tuned, and you can only hear us here at www.franklins.net. Right. For some of our listeners that may not know what uh, smart client deployment is, could you uh, give us the two-cent overview of that? I'll try to give a quick overview of that. Basically, with, with what I'm, I'm trying to, to consistently use the term distributed smart client systems to describe what I'm, I'm about, to, uh, uh, about to cover in, in, in terms of structure. In a distributed smart client system, the application is placed on a web server in a web directory that's accessible through a URL, and there is some process that that happens on a client machine that kicks the application off. This can be as simple as clicking a link in a browser page, or you can have some small starter app. Think of it as an intelligent uh, splash screen that runs on the client, and it begins the process of the application running, but all that that initial action does is to point to the web server that contains the real application. The first piece of the real application then comes down to the client, is copied via HTTP over the web automatically by .NET with no real work on the part of the, the, uh, the, the, the application on the other end. All you have to do is locate the application and say you want it and it comes across the web and it begins to work on the client. Presuming, of course, that the client has the .NET framework installed upon it. Right. Then, if that piece of the application requires another piece, it merely re references that piece the way it normally would on a local machine. .NET detects that that reference needs to go back to the web server and bring another piece down. Then, the, the entire application thus trickle feeds down, and if you come back at a future time and there is a different version on the web server, that version will automatically be brought down and copied in place of the old version. So you've got a way of quickly projecting the application out to clients and automatically versioning it from the web server, which then uh, is, is, a, is a very low-cost deployment model. Now you're talking about... Um Really, we're talking about doing this in an enterprise, right, where you have to roll out applications not to every Joe Internet browser user, that, or or it, or do you? you well, it, it's it's see that's a <laughs> the answer to that question depends upon what month are you living right? in. Right, and the reason <laughs> I, the reason I asked you that is to throw a monkey wrench in here because if you just go to a site and link to a .NET EXE, and even if you do have the .NET framework installed. You can't just run that EXE, do you? Can you? There, there is a no, security. No, not right now, because there, at this point there are security considerations that prevent that from happening. Right. So that's what I wanted to bring up. The security model prevents you from uh, just allowing code to run haphazardly. That's right. And so the the client machine has to be set to trust 
the uh, web server that the, the application is coming from in order for the application to have the privileges it needs. And there is a very fine grain of configurability that's allowed there so that the application can be set, told, well, you can talk to this particular directory, but you can't talk to anything else on the file system, for example. Is there a way in the security model, Billy, that you can um, set forth uh, some settings across all the client machines that say you can only allow uh, executables to run that come from our internal servers and other .NET applications that are out there on the web we won't allow to run? I'm not sure if you un if I understand your question. Okay. Certainly, uh, the security has the capability to to only trust the sites that you tell it to trust. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and uh, um, and and the amount of of privileges that those trusted sites have can vary from one to another. So that you, an application that you download from site A might have the ability to get to a database, but an application from site B not, might not be allowed to have that same level of, yeah. of privilege. So there is a very fine-grained capability there. I think one of the skills, if I'm if I'm sort of speaking to, to people who are getting into .NET, trying to understand where the, the the demand's going to be for skills, the ability to understand the security system, how to manipulate it, what the implications of working with it are, what its relationship to the deployment scenarios are, those people are going to have some very valuable skills in a reasonably short period of time. And I would recommend that that's one of the areas of study for people. And you know, that's, that's the sort of thing programmers don't like to hear. Nobody, yeah. Who wants to who wants to care about security? Well, it's a it's an increasing uh, increasing concern. It is an increasing concern, and the security model in .NET is a very powerful one. The most powerful one I've ever worked with. There may be others out there that are equal to it, but it's the most powerful one I've ever seen. And so it's very flexible, and and being able to take advantage of it, I think, will be. A very important skill. Now, when that skill comes into play is going to vary. I made the joke about what month are we in. The viability of smart of distributed smart clients depends upon the presence of the framework. And it, right now, the framework isn't very widely distributed, but we will be in a world, say, two or three years from now, in which the framework is pretty much ubiquitous on Windows-based machines. And yeah. then that will open up the possibility of even pu perhaps public uh, publicly available applications yeah, that I'm run trying, on the internet. I'm trying to read the listener's mind here and ask the questions that a listener would a would ask. Question one is uh, about the framework. You know that uh, you know how how big is it? How, what's the what's the issue with that? Question two is uh, how difficult is it to touch all those client machines with uh, security policies? Um, you know to to allow. Uh, code from site A, but not from site B, to do such and such. Um, so those two questions, I guess. I'd those like are to... those are two very good questions. The the download for the framework, which you have to contend with until everybody has the framework built into the operating system. The download runs about 18 megabytes, and that's that's not that's not something that you just whip over the line in a couple of seconds. Uh, it also takes a fair amount of disk space and memory on on the target machine, even though. The framework will run, for example, on Windows 98. I'm sure there are a lot of Windows 98 machines out there that aren't very well equipped to run the framework, and it might not be wise to put to put it on them. So the the framework is is uh, is definitely an issue. The security policy, you know, that that's a there isn't at this point any good way to project that policy out there. Um, there are ways to do it. There are ways that that you're able, for example, when you set up security policy on a given system to export that policy as XML. 
and then you're able to transfer it in the form of XML to the client. But there has to be a manual process in there, uh, and somebody has to have privileges on the client to adopt the local security policy because if security could be adjusted automatically, it wouldn't be any good. Hey, Billy, we uh, have a caller on the line from Woodstock, Georgia. Uh, Mark Berry, uh, what kind of question do you have for Billy Hollis tonight? Well, everything you hear from Microsoft is web services, so much so that uh, the rest of .NET can sort of get lost in the mix sometimes. I wondered what the decision points were in choosing remoting over web services. In choosing remoting? Uh, you mean for the customer to choose remoting over web services? That's correct. Well, that's a, that's a question that could, could take a lot of while to answer, but the, the most straightforward decision points are – first of all, it's probably worth mentioning as to why Microsoft takes that position. Or even what remoting is. Yeah, what, yeah. so let's get, get, get sort of step back a, a stage to get into that. Web services was something that Microsoft felt like had a lot of sexiness in terms of its marketing message because it allows you to tie computers of all different types together no matter what operating system they're on and, and, and no matter what platform and hardware they're running. So they're a more flexible alternative for integration. They run only over HTTP and uh, across the Internet, uh, well, using Internet technologies, I should say. You could use them on a network via HTTP as well. Remoting is in a, essentially the, the .NET equivalent of DCOM that allows you to have a process on one machine communicating with a process on another machine to, to, to basically activate remote components. Uh, it can run over HTTP. It can also run over TCP IP, and it, it can use binary protocols as opposed to uh, web services, which must use HTTP-based protocols, which necessarily then are text-based. So you've got a, a real um, difference there in terms of where they're, they're designed to be applied. Remoting is primarily designed to be applied to uh, networks of systems inside a given organization. It can be extended outside that, but it's primarily designed for that, that circumstance. I think probably the decision point comes down to do you control both ends of the connection, and do you need very good performance on, on the, the process that's being uh, used, the process that's being communicated? The, if, if, you, if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then remoting is pretty obviously the answer that you need. If, if you control both ends and you need very good performance, remoting is, is a, a, the, pretty much the obvious alternative. And how about if, if you can get through the firewall? Because that alone right there could kill remoting. That's right. Well, that's why I say if you control both machines, which kind of implies that you know how to get them connected to one another. Very good. Um, web services, on the other hand, if you have to go through firewalls, if you have to go to other other systems that uh, that are going to be across the Internet that you may not control very much about what operating system is running there, uh, exactly what's going on on that machine. Web services are really designed for that circumstance. The best research I've seen indicates that you can get an improvement in performance for remoting of 30 to 40 percent, which is pretty significant, but it's not like it's 10 or 100 times faster than web services. So it's it's not a case that Anytime performance is, is an issue, you automatically choose remoting. It's is that much performance uh, increment uh, worth worth taking on the additional work in doing remoting because the configuration of remoting and uh, making it work is more complex than web services. Yeah, certainly making uh, web services work is really really easy in .NET. Yeah, and remoting is at this point kind of an arcane art. Uh, the best book I've seen on it. 
that goes into some of those details is by Ingo Rammer. And unfortunately, the examples are in C sharp rather than VBNet for us VB guys. But uh, it still it still discusses the the, the uh, conceptual issues behind remoting quite well. However, you know, I you, think Ingo's writing a VB.NET version of that book right well, now. I would love to see that. I was also going to mention that uh, at www.franklins.net we have a link to a C sharp to VB converter program. There's a couple of them out there, and some new ones have just cropped up. So uh, we have links to those. Okay, I hope that uh, that gave a pretty good answer to your question. Yeah, that was very good. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, thank you for the call, Mark. <laughs> See you, Mark. All right, Billy, we got another call from Wayne McPhail from Birmingham, Alabama. Wayne, you got a question for Billy? Uh, yes, I do. Um, here you go. I've been working with .NET now for a couple of months, and I've become a little concerned with the memory footprint of my new .NET apps. I'm a VV6 developer, and I've noticed that memory usage for similar .NET apps is significantly higher than in VV6. Uh, can you tell me why this is happening? Great well, question. Great question. I'll try to, to sketch over some of the factors there. There's no doubt that, that .NET is a, a bigger consumer of memory resources than VB6. Uh, there are some pretty good reasons for that. Uh, you know, at, at, at the base of those reasons is that Microsoft tends to do a pretty good job of leading the target in terms of, of the hardware, the appropriate hardware configuration for the stuff that they produce. Um, I, I, I was interested to notice myself when I first began fooling around with the betas in .NET about two years ago that the, um, the, the, the processor, the speed of the processor didn't seem to make a lot of difference. How much memory is on the system makes all the difference in the world. Part of that is that the .NET framework itself just needs a lot of memory in which to operate, in which to load the objects and, and load the data types that it's working with because it's doing so much. But probably a bigger reason is that so much of what happens in .NET is dependent upon the .NET framework. And pieces of the .NET framework tend to be pretty good sized. So that, for example, if you use ADO.NET, you're loading a pretty large library. Which you do by default, by the way, in the in the default. Uh... I'm sorry. Yes, it's it's auto. If you do a VBNet app, it will automatically be referred to in, in that application. You may be only using a very small portion of the the functionality that's in that library, but the entire library is is being loaded. Now, the the trade-off is that your application actually turns out to be smaller. Uh, .NET applications that are produced uh, for let's say a, a moderately complex form might be oh, 150 to 200K in VB6. They'd be more likely to be 40 or 50K in .NET. So the end product that you produce is smaller, but the pieces it's using in the framework are quite a lot bigger. There are a couple things you can do to ameliorate it. You can't really make this problem go away. But one thing you can do is that if there are libraries uh, that are being referred to in your project that you don't need, you can, get, you can dereference them, and that will keep them from loading. Um, there are actually some fairly other clever things that you can do. Um, in, in particular, if you have a whole bunch of uh, uh, pieces of your application that are very seldom needed, you can actually load assemblies and reference classes on the fly. And that means that they'll never be placed into memory until they're actually used by your application. Now, you have to go through a little more sophisticated uh, technique to load your classes to do that, but if you have large portions of your application that you need to keep out of memory until they're needed, you can do it that way. Is that what uh, a class factory is? That's the, yeah. You, well, it's the, the assembly load from right. method. 
basically it's the same technology that's used to load um, things from across the internet. You can actually use it locally, and and because of the way that .NET loads assemblies, uh, there's not a there's not actually a reference in your project to that assembly. It's it's dynamically loaded on the fly. So you don't you don't have a lot of memory footprint until you actually load the assemblies. Well, Billy, what do you think about the uh, the hardware level of most machines today? I mean, we're seeing memory prices drop, uh, hard disk space is cheap. Yeah. So do you really think that it's going to be that big of a deal? That's why I don't think it's it's a huge deal because while there are certainly going to be machines out there that you don't want to put .NET on because of of their age. Um, any of the newer machines are going to be fine. I recommend to people when they ask me that the client machines should have 128 megabytes in order to run .NET. And for a development environment, obviously, you need quite a bit more than that. Uh, but I, the, the applications that I have done uh, and put out there seem to run reasonably successfully in 128 megabytes. If they're intensive data applications, you might want to bump that up to 256. And Wayne, like I said in the last show, um, you know, the alternative to this design would be if Microsoft had chopped up the framework into more DLLs. So instead of having a system data DLL that's, you know, two megabytes, you would have system data dot this, system data dot that, and uh, depending on what you wanted to do, you'd have to reference more and more and more and more DLLs. So uh, the trade-off is, you know, productivity right. as well for, uh, you know, and a little bit more ease of use. Um, okay. And I'll be down in Birmingham, by the way, in a couple of weeks. Oh, really? I'm teaching a full week uh, Visual Basic .NET class down there at Athena Learning Center in, oh. in Birmingham. Very cool. Very cool, yeah. Yeah, that's right off uh, Highway 280. It's a pleasant area, Billy. Good, good. Wayne, thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks a lot for your help. Hey, if you'd like us to let you know when the next .NET Rocks episode is up and running and who's on, just follow the links to the .NET newsletter from www.franklins.net. We'll send out a notification every time we publish a show so you can spend less time surfing the web and more time getting the information you need. So, Billy, do you have any stories from the field about uh, adoption of .NET or, or use on a project, a, a particular customer? You don't have to name names, but um, some success stories or some even some non-success stories. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I can't say there are any failures at this point. There are still some that are pending, but uh, the ones that have gotten completed seem to be uh, quite quite exciting. We finished an ASP.NET project a, a little while back to do... Uh, about management of preventative care on the web, and, and we're pretty excited about that. It was a, a local startup. There is a lot of health care work here in Nashville, so you tend to see a lot of that. Uh, but I did work with one financial services company here. That was one of the bigger success stories because they were owned by a corporate parent in Europe, and the corporate standard there was Java. Uh -huh. And so the team that was trying to get .NET adopted was facing a real uphill struggle there. But the, the, the key thing that uh, .NET brought into play that did it for them was that the application they were writing needed the ability to be projected out onto laptops as a very smart client. And um, Java, while Java is, is, a, is a pretty good product and, 
in many respects, that their story is really on the server side. That's really where they are, the only place they have a good story to tell. There really isn't a good story about concerning Java on the on the client. I mean, you can project it to a browser, right. and they have a library, their Swing library, which is a very pale imitation of Windows Forms. But if you're talking about really smart client programming, at this point, .NET's about the only game in town. And oh, that the only... carried the day internally. Well, it certainly is the only Windows game in town. Well, you know, I would claim if you if you want a really smart client, how many other client, how many other environments out there that are important? Right. Um, Macintosh is whatever small percentage of the market, and and then most of the Unix systems have have a windowing system, but there isn't any one that's big enough to really have people target. Well, speaking for of that, clients. speaking of Macs and Linux and Unix and all that. Um, the Rotor Project. This is the first time I've talked about the Rotor Project uh, in .NET Rocks. What have you heard about that? Well, just what everybody else has heard. I've seen the news releases about it and that they expect that they're going to be able to basically put, uh, the, I guess you'd call it the kernel of .NET, the most essential parts, right. into, a, into an open source uh, kind of, uh, of, of a distribution. Um, I, I wonder whether or not they are understanding the technical challenges that they're taking on. Yeah, I don't know either. Well, uh, I'll tell you what I've heard. I've heard that uh, the Rotor project, I guess, is the, the common language runtime being ported to different platforms. Uh, currently, it's in FreeBSD. I've heard from Microsoft that they don't endorse or support it. Right. But that they have the, oh, uh, you know, the, the, the interface between the CLR and the operating system is called the Common Language Infrastructure, and right. that they have opened that up as a standard and documented everything. So they have it running on FreeBSD, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what Mac OS X is based on? I don't know which Unix variant OS I don't know X either. is based this on. Is I just a, know what's a Unix variant. I'm crying dumb on this one. Maybe if a caller wants to uh, <laughs> help me with <laughs> to that. educate both of us on this. <laughs> and uh, also that uh, they ported it to Linux, and they actually did get a compile on a console application and got it to run. So um, that's yes, what I've and, heard and so it's far. It's probably worth mentioning that once Microsoft put the, those elements of .NET, the common language infrastructure and some of the other elements of .NET, to a standards body, namely ECMA, Excellent. At that point, um, the, the, it is a standard in that sense, so they can't prevent this sort of thing from happening. Right. And I don't know that they're really upset about it. They just don't no. want to be tagged as being responsible if it goes badly. Exactly. That's why they're keeping their distance. Well, that was a nice little uh, foray into the unknown. So let <laughs> me get back to your uh, your uh, stories. So well, anyway, that was a big success story there, where, where the client went out and. And displaced Java. Another uh, interesting project that here in, in in Nashville, because there is so much healthcare here, um, there's a, comp a local company that's been working in .NET for quite some time on clinical records management software, huh. and uh, that I think is an interesting uh, possibility of success because we're seeing the convergence of a lot of trends there. Well, we're seeing the the ability of a more better distributed software because of .NET, the integration of mobile platforms because of .NET, and then you're seeing things like the tablet PC be able to put a lot more intelligence and capability in the hands of these healthcare providers that are walking around and have to be very mobile. I want one of those. Yeah, they're pretty nice, aren't they? I saw them down at a couple of conferences. And then, of course, I think in addition to that, you've got things like the doctors that are coming out, coming into the 
to the industry now are a lot more comfortable with computers, yeah. and they don't feel like they have to carry those paper pads around. Yeah. So I think we're really poised to see healthcare dramatically change. That's a tough industry, though. That's a tough industry. I, I worked in actually wrote some clinical software um, for a company in uh, a startup company in California called Win Squared. Then they moved to Waltham of all places under Care Tools. I don't know what they're doing now, but anyway, uh, um, uh, I learned a lot about so selling software to the medical industry. <laughs> it's tough. It's very tough because they're so rigid and so difficult to accept. Uh, I mean, basically, you're asking them to trust people's lives with your technology. That's right. And, uh, and, and they don't do that very easily. And we all we all know that there are a lot of people in the in the computer industry that. You know, if they wrote the control code for an elevator, I wouldn't ride on it. Okay? You help us write. And so I can understand why the medical professionals are starting to, to feel that way. On the other hand, don't discount the fact that the fact that, that, that this stuff is distributed on paper and such leads to a lot of errors and right. a lot of cost. Uh, I put in a healthcare application in one uh, in one clinic that estimated that they the paper based system that it replaced they were losing probably $15,000 a month in stuff that never made it to the patient's bills. Wow. Just because of the nature of the way things uh, were handled on their paper system. So the technology certainly has a lot of ability, I think, to deliver more accurate information to healthcare professionals, and that can actually save a lot of lives, and, and, and I'm looking forward to that uh, that taking place. But, you know, you're right. We thought that this was going to happen in healthcare several times before, and it never quite has. But now I think maybe all the factors are coming together so that it really will. We certainly have a good platform for it. Yeah, I think .NET will play a big role in, in making that happen. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention recently I did a code review for a company here in Atlanta, and they're looking at taking a VB6 app and rewriting that in .NET. They wanted me to take a look at their code and see what kind of challenges uh, they were going to face in doing that. You know, one thing that really struck me when I got into their code it looked like VB3 code that uh, had just been ported into VB6, really. You didn't see a class module anywhere. There was no object-oriented design at all applied to their project. So, you know, I had to ask them. I said, you know, was this really a VB3 app that got somehow ported over to VB6? And they told me no, that their programmers had worked in VB3 uh, for most of their careers, and this was actually a new application that they wrote when VB6 first came out. So, you know, that led me to believe that these programmers uh, really just were fearful or didn't want to take advantage of OO, and they were just writing straight VB3 code uh, into this application. So that, that made me start to wonder if a lot of programmers are really going to embrace the new OO features. I mean, you know, we've heard the cry for inheritance, multi-threading for years. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you really think that uh, most of the VB6 population out there is really going to learn about and take advantage of some of the, the new features available in .NET? Well, some portion of them will, and, and to try to understand how big that portion is, uh, I go back to, let's say, the 97, 98 time frame when I was doing a lot of recruiting of Visual Basic developers. At that time, uh, you, have been, you had been able to do class modules in VB for two to three years, and less than 10% of the programmers knew anything about that or, or could tell you why you might want to write a class module. Go forward to 2000, 2001, the percentage had gotten up to 25% perhaps. So you're still talking two-thirds to three-quarters of, of VB programmers when .NET began to come up on the scene that at that point couldn't tell you anything about object technologies. Now, can those people go forward into .NET? 
Yes, but they aren't taking very good advantage of it. They can write applications the same way they always did. They can just hack their way through. The applications won't be very good, but the applications they're writing today aren't very good. So I don't know that, that .NET will hurt them there. They just there, There's not much of a good reason to move to it because they're not going to be taking best advantage of it, but there's, there's not too much we can do about that. As to why they're not and what, you, what can be done about it, they're, I, I think, the best metaphor to try to understand that has to do with the fact that learning object orientation is very much like learning a new language, okay? You almost have to have somebody there to teach it to you. And so the VB community hasn't had a lot of people to be able to do that. It's a several-month transition for people to learn that way. And you go through many of the same conceptual phases you do when you learn a language. You go, okay, at first when you learn a language, you just kind of learn the vocabulary. You compose your sentences the way you always did in your old language, and you mentally try to translate to the new language, right? And right. then after you use the new language long enough, you form new mental patterns, and you think in that language. That's the way object orientation is. People have to learn to think in it, and that's just a long period of time, and having somebody around to teach it to you makes all the difference. So I think a lot of these Visual Basic guys, th these teams, they just need to have people on the teams that will draw them into that object-oriented world because otherwise they're going to be giving away a lot of the benefits of .NET. Right, and I, I run into this teaching classes very often when uh, I get into talking about interfaces and objects and the benefits of writing object-oriented type programs, you just really see the lights come on with a lot of students. Uh, I mean, they love it once they see what they can do with it. Yeah, yeah but it, it just takes time for, for that those mental models to sink in. Once you really embrace that world, you think about software development differently. You think about requirements gathering differently. You think about everything differently. It's real. It's the overused term paradigm shift. It really is one. Dan had And a, I'll be honest with you. There are some sorry. number of those VB programmers who will never make that shift. Okay, uh, they're, they're just not mentally capable of doing it. I hate to say that, but I think it's true. I agree with you. Um, Dan Appleman had a good point uh, about that, which is that um, – you know the the typical, and he didn't use this particular example, but this is this is right along the same lines of what he's saying. The typical examples that you see in classes, and mine included, uh, start with you know here's a person object with a first name and a last name, and then here's a customer object that inherits the person, and um, you know I, all the time I'm teaching this, I'm teaching this as a as a conceptual tool, and one day I got. The question, so are you recommending that this is like a best practice in the real world to make uh, data abstraction layers like this for your... And uh, so, I, so I really had to get into it and focus on uh, making a point of saying that, you know, this is just a teaching tool. We'll get it, you know. But seeing that, uh, just that whole process just really makes me think about, and, and this is what Dan's point was, that we use inherit we're going to use inheritance in the real world not necessarily to make data models that you know uh, sort of m model the database in the middle tier because the data set does that very well but um, more to extend a framework that already exists like uh, this is in this it always seems to make more of an impact when i use a demo of inheriting a label or a text box into a new label or text yeah. box you know, as a programming tool to extend something that's already there and just change the behavior a little bit. Um, that that always, you know, the I can see the light bulbs going off because there there you see an object model really that exists already. You're not creating the whole thing from scratch. We're probably not going to 
use inheritance that much in business objects. More of it's going to be extending frameworks that are already there. What do you think of right, that? Right, this may be a, kind of a new hell. We get away from DLL hell, but we're introduced to inheritance hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there are some dangers there, but I don't think they're, they're nearly as big. And when you of think course. about it conceptually, DB developers ought to embrace that kind of thinking of, an, of, of inheriting from the framework and reusing it because the big difference in VB programmers from most other types is that they have a, a great openness to use technology created by others. Yeah. And so I, once they understand that they can take that thing that does 95% of what they want and just write the 5% that needs to be added to it instead of starting over from scratch, they get pretty excited about it, but it does take time to get that across. Yeah. Right. Uh, you run into a lot of programmers that are used to kind of writing things on the fly without really sitting down and designing it first. And, you know, really with object-oriented systems, I can't stress uh, to people enough, you need to come up with some sort of a plan before you start writing the code. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and VB programmers are the worst in the world about programming without a plan. Well, it's a different model. The You know, the VB3 model is you sort of get stuff going very quickly and then you spend most of the time you know when it gets more and more and more complex and uh the design sort of morphs and gets more difficult to control the the more code you write and with objects you have to do more of the work up front and then do, you know writing the actual application gets easier and easier yeah too part of it is uh, early on everybody was writing uh, monolithic apps really and, uh, you know, I, I especially think back to uh, work I did in, in VB1 and VB2. I, I was just writing simple little applications in Windows that didn't really access databases necessarily. Uh, there was nothing client-server, nothing in tier. So, you know, you fast-forward to today, and systems are much more complex. We've got to deal with multiple tiers, a lot of things that, that are there to have to worry about. Yeah, and... That and and those who who don't embrace those ideas, as I said, it's going to be harder for them to take advantage of .NET. One of the points I didn't make about the remoting versus web services thing is that one of the things you want to do, if you're even the least bit undecided about what you're going to use now and later, is most of my applications now have a layer in them in which there's basically it's basically a switching layer that allows access to objects to be local or web services or remoting and to have a, a, a central place that you can switch that off. And that's part of object-oriented thinking, to think about doing things that way. And uh, if people don't do that, then even even something as simple as, as deciding whether or not to do remoting or web services is a, is a much tougher decision. Hey, Billy, do you think there are any holes in the framework that you'd like to uh, see plugged in future versions? Oh, yeah, there are some, some significant areas. Uh, well, part of it... I, I, I consider web services to be somewhat immature. In yeah. particular, the security model leaves a lot to be desired. And, and I know the next generation of, the, of standards for specifications for web services will include more capability to, to, to do security. Right, right now, you have to do a ton of stuff manually. You think performance and, will get better, too? Uh, performance, you know, I think it will get better, but I don't think it will get that much better, just yeah. because I think most of, of the layers that web services have to go through uh, are, are going to exact going to exact a certain. Think we'll ever have a ubiquitous XML binary format? Oh, <laughs> I, I have no opinion on that. <laughs> I, I I haven't even heard that anything about that. But you know, just in my evil mind, I can yeah, see somebody coming up. You with know, that. it's it's the old. If, if you're gonna have if you're gonna have binary and try to put it through firewalls, how are you? It's it's a mess, and, it and a I, mess. I don't want to think much about that. Some of the other holes, um, as as nice and as forward thinking as the whole deployment thing is. 
there are some some areas of it that are that are that are also immature. Let's say, for example, you're a commercial software vendor. You'd like to have your clients automatically update off the web, um, but you'd like to reach a certain point in time in which they can't do it anymore, okay? Yeah. Because you th- their support runs out. There's no API in that deployment model you can program against to do any of that. So so that's that's a, a, another hole. Um, I think that there are some holes in in Windows Forms. While Windows Forms came out to be a, a pretty interesting advance over some stuff in in old the old Visual Basic, there are also some areas where where it falls down. Uh, that that the things that, that Visual better, Basic let you do a little bit easier. That uh, I think that they'll be continuing to work on there. Um, and and let's see where else would I I, I put holes. Um, the, the the data stuff is nice. And I really like it, yeah. but I, I have to say that the data model you use in .NET is probably more complex than it needs to be for the routine kind of data access work that most programmers do. It should be a little simpler. It the should high be end. a lot. Yeah, it should be a fair amount simpler for those guys. Uh, I like the fact that the data access stuff is all done through code. Even if you use wizards and such, right. there's you know there's code there you can get into. No See black boxes. I That's love that good. stuff, but let's face it. There's just a lot of people out there who just want to say, "I need this data, and I want to update it, and I want to send it back, and I just don't want to understand all the rest right. of this stuff." And the frameworks really got nothing there to offer them. What do you think? Uh, you got any recommendations for third-party uh, Windows Forms controls? I have tried very hard to stick to um, uh, third-party uh, or, or the, the native controls. The, the the controls that I've seen that I, that I like outside that infragistics grid controls are pretty good. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I've I've used some of the others. I haven't seen that they're so compelling that I would add them into the mix rather than use the native controls. Well, and I think the native controls will get better there. One, yeah, I think one, so probably too. one final area that I think there's some holes that that need to be done, and this this gets into the ASP.NET area. Um, ASP.NET has an architecture that allows you to talk to lots of browsers. But in fact, the controls that are there now don't do a very good job of that. All they do is talk to very smart versions of IE and then everything else. Well, the architecture is there to allow controls, web web controls, server controls, that that can talk to any number of different browsers and tweak the, the output for them. In other words, those controls can have a lot more intelligence put into them. It doesn't look like Microsoft is very interested in doing that. The third-party guys, I think, will evolve and fill some of those holes as time goes on. Yeah, I agree, and it's all there in machine config, isn't it? Yeah, it's all there to do it. You just, but nobody's done the work yet. That's a very good yeah. point. So that could be the next uh, big market for controls. If I were, if I were on the web side of things, I would figure that to be a big market. I would figure it to be a bigger market than than controls for Windows forms. But yeah. because you know. Here's the story. In Windows Forms, it's a lot more practical for people to inherit and create their own than it ever used to be. True. So the barrier to entry there is a lot lower. However, I will say this: that seeing, you know, I I looked at a, I did some work for a company that used Component One's True Grid, and uh, just looking at the size of that, it was about 400k. You know, and if you think about it, that's a control that's all built on the framework. You know, there's no extra. ActiveX yeah. DLLs and everything. That's a lot of logic. It is. It's a lot of logic. And but if you think about it, third-party controls in general now are more attractive. They should be more attractive than they were in the ActiveX world. Oh yeah, I don't mean to imply that they're not, but just by matter of degree, the sure. web controls look even more exciting. Well, that's true. Me. 
That's true. I'm just saying that, you know, if if you're thinking about the third-party control and then the little voice in the back of your head says, no, we don't want to use any, yeah, yeah. because of the deployment problems, et cetera, that, you know, those problems are minimal. That Yeah, that's probably the one thing to to, uh, to get out to people making the move is that their instincts are, yeah, I'll use a third-party control if I just don't have any other alternative yeah. because of the deployment and licensing things that, right. that went along with it. Those things are a lot more simplified in .NET. So you Smaller shouldn't files. trust those instincts coming over. You should exactly. be a little more open to third-party controls. So, Billy, any final thoughts before we sign off? Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm working on an article that's kind of driving some of the some of the thoughts about .NET. .NET for business decision makers. I, I hope that one of the I think one of our responsibilities is people who really understand this technology is to get out there and communicate to the the business decision making guys about what the benefits are, what the effects of .NET are going to be, both in the short term and the long term. And I think it's pretty clear what, to, to many of us what those effects are going to be. The fact that the, the distributed systems, the, the fact that we're getting away from the browser for certain types of applications, and the fact that mobile integration is a lot more uh, effective. And there's even things like how you create programming teams, because the common programming model means that the uh, the fact that you can use the same language in a much broader set of circumstances means that you even have different makeups of programming teams now. So a lot of those things need to be communicated, and, and, and the decision makers are, are pretty clueless. I go into these people all the time at the early stages of their .NET decision making, and many times just a, a couple of hours conversation, and they come out of there going, man, we were just going to do it wrong. Yeah. And I'm afraid there are a lot of companies that aren't asking the advice of experienced I people. I completely agree. So we really owe it to the industry to get at, get those that that expertise out there that's one of the so reasons decisions are made yeah that's one of the reasons this show exists is because there's so much there's so much marketing stuff that you you, you rarely hear a third-party perspective anyway um uh, just to echo one of your points an, another issue uh that people probably aren't thinking about that much and the business decision makers aren't thinking about is the productivity lost because your c programmers and your vb programmers can't learn from each other Right, right, right. And now, if they're C sharp programmers and VBNet programmers, they can go have lunch. <laughs> they can finally hang out, and, and the VB programmer can say, "Hey, you know what? What about threading?" And they yeah. can talk the same objects. And uh, I think that's an enormous benefit—the social benefit of having all your programmers um, using the same tools, basically, no matter what language you're using. Uh, I, I know that I learned a lot about programming. You know, hanging out in in bars, let me say, you know, quaffing down the beers with the guys in the in the development shops who were, you know, the C programmers and I was, you know, learning quick basic and learning it from the top down, so to speak, instead of from the bottom up. And uh, you know, I I'd have my questions were like, what is a stack? You know, things like <laughs> that. <laughs> so, you know, and then and them trying to uh frame it for me in a context that I can understand was very difficult. So uh I think that's an important aspect you can't overlook. Well, anyway, uh, Billy, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and, and expressing your views and sharing your insights with the world. Um, I enjoyed it. I hope people got some benefit out of it. I'm sure they did. And uh, thank you, the listening audience out there, from myself and Mark. Yes, I really enjoyed the talk, Billy. It's always a pleasure. Well, thanks. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Yes, I'm a, a time boy.